Welcome to the Learning in Wartime podcast, a show dedicated to eternal conversations for frontline living. I'm your host, Dane Bundy. In 1938, C.S. Lewis gave a sermon at Oxford University entitled Learning in Wartime. Though war for the whole world loomed ahead, Lewis argued that we must not give up on learning, for the war doesn't create a new situation, but only aggravates the permanent one, so we no longer can ignore it. Today marks the next episode of our podcast, and it also marks a time of great uncertainty, for that's what crises do. But as Christians, our hope is found in nothing less than the eternal and sovereign one, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I clearly remember the time we moved into a home in the California mountains. The home was secluded from most people, and our primary neighbors were the squirrels, pine trees, and deer. Like most homes in the mountains, we had three levels since it was built into the hillside. On moving day, my family was generous enough to help us unload, and I remember them walking the multiple sets of stairs, carrying box after box after box, from truck to living room and back again. When only one or two boxes remained in the truck, from the window I saw my dad ascending the stairs with a box in his hand. He saw me, smiled, and said, You better read all of these books, Dane. It's true, I have a lot of books, and when we move, they take up at least a quarter of the load. And as of now, Dad, I haven't read all of them, but I am working on it. A home and heart full of books is a wonderful gift, but I've also found it to be a two-edged sword as well, and I'm not just talking about the weight of moving all of them. One glimpse at our bookshelves may stir joy and humility. I have so much to learn, and I can't wait. While another glimpse may leave us thinking, I've learned so much. I can't wait for people to hear me. As Paul states in his letter to the Corinthians, knowledge puffs up. This arrogance can sink into classrooms and programs and schools, even Christian ones, if we're not careful. But that shouldn't keep us from reading, but it should keep us alert. Besides asking the Lord to search my heart and keep me from arrogance, one strategy I found helpful in preventing knowledge from puffing up is to share it with others and then listen to them to have a true conversation. That's one of the reasons for this podcast, an opportunity to model the type of dialogue we pray that continues to go on inside our classrooms and in our community. Today we're talking about a man. Today we're talking about a man and his magnum opus, Augustine or Augustine, and his The City of God. Don't feel bad if you don't know much about him or haven't read the book. The last thing I want for you to feel is embarrassed about this, and I'll be honest, I haven't read the entire book either. But this is what I do know. If you desire to grow in the understanding of the Christian faith, sooner or later, we'll need to wrestle with Augustine and his thinking. You'll soon see why. So I've invited two guests to the show today, and I'm coming to this episode as a student. My guests do know Augustine and the City of God. The first guest is Annie Ballard. She's one of our Latin teachers at Providence Academy, and she studied theology at Moody Bible Institute. The other guest is my good friend Russell Hendricks. Mr. Hendricks holds multiple degrees in theology and boasts a full life of studying, thinking, and teaching about scripture and theology. His focus over the years has been in patristics, the early church theologians, and historical theology, which is a perfect match for our discussion today. P.S. Today's episode is a little longer and more detailed than others, so feel free to listen to it in pieces if you'd like, or if that suits you best. Well, without further ado, let's turn to our guests. Mr. Hendricks and Mrs. Ballard, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you, Dane. Glad to be with you. 
Well, we are gathered to discuss a very important theologian and one of his very important works. So I'll go ahead and ask the first question for our listeners and for myself. Who was Augustine and why does he matter to the church today? Augustine lived a long and eventful life. He was born in the year AD 354. He died in 430. He lived during a period called, by modern historians, of late antiquity. And one of the reasons Augustine is important is because he did live during this period of late antiquity. And so late antiquity is a transition period from, in the West anyway, from the ancient world to the early Middle Ages and the medieval world. So Augustine is important for his time in history, but his importance goes way beyond the fact that he just lived at a, uh, a pivotal time in history. Uh, let me give you a quote, Dane, from yes. there are numerous, uh, numerous scholars, both Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, secular, have discussed the significance of Augustine. And I'm going to read to you just a very brief uh, evaluation of Augustine, his place in history, and so forth, by a French Catholic scholar who lived about 100 years ago. And I may expand on this just a little bit, but here's a quote. He is certainly to judge by the extent and the wealth of his work, his profound teaching and powerful originality, not less than by his manifold gifts, which enabled him to be so active in such diverse domains the greatest genius the church has ever possessed. Wow. So we could unpack that, uh, talk about his originality, everything Augustine touched. He seemed to bring uh, a certain ingenuity and originality and genius to it. Uh, he made uh, major contributions, uh, especially in Christian theology. Uh, we could talk about a few of those if you want. I'll just, I'll just mention a couple of them. Yes, please. Uh, okay. Augustine is actually the primary architect of what we understand by the concept of original sin. Uh, oh, wow. he, hammered, he hammered this out during the uh, Pelagian controversy with uh, the, the British monk Pelagius. We attribute that to Augustine. Augustine also is considered to be the theologian of grace. Another reason for that, this also occurred during the Pelagian controversy, is that the understanding that we have today of grace, especially in the Protestant and evangelical churches, is basically the understanding of grace that Augustine set forth. So if hmm. we were to walk up and, and ask uh, a student, a teacher, can you define grace? Oftentimes in a Christian school, a person will say, that's the unmerited favor of God. Well, that is, that is Augustine's understanding of it. And we tend to think that we just got that directly from the Bible. And I'm not saying it's not there and can't be taken from the Scripture. However, it was a debatable point during that time because Pelagius thought that God gives grace to those, in a sense, who do what they're supposed to do. And so, therefore, mm -hmm. grace is a, is a help. It's not just it's not unmerited. It actually helps those, in a sense, who are on the right path, so to speak. And so Augustine, once again, is considered the, the theologian of grace. Augustine also, once again, in controversy with Pelagius, 
hammered out a certain understanding of free will in relation to the providence of God. Hmm. Augustine never denied free will. However, what Augustine says is that after the fall, Adam did not lose free will. If he had lost free will, he wouldn't be human anymore because uh, he would not have. uh, This is what Thomas Aquinas calls human acts. In other words, the 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 uh, the deliberative faculty that humans have in the human soul that causes them to consider uh, and judge before they act. That's what we mean by, uh, uh, you know, the human will and a human act. But Augustine said, so we all have free will even after the fall. However, what's been lost, what was lost by Adam and by his progeny, the us who follow him, is what Augustine called libertas. And that is a freedom to serve and please God out of a heart that is, uh, in a sense, in communion with God and doing those good works for the benefit and love of God. So that's what Augustine's denying. He's not denying free will, but he is denying an aspect of the will that... Adam had, and that was Adam had libertas, but now the libertas is lost, even though Adam still has free will. Hmm. So, do I need to clarify that, or do you think? No, I think. Yeah, I think that was that was clear. Let me ask you this: So, is this a is this a an adequate summary in regards to his view of freedom? That he would say that not that man has lost his ability to choose and make decisions after the fall, but that Augustine has recognized that now the will is enslaved and is not as free as it was when Adam and Eve were in the garden. Yes, yes. In fact, Augustine, uh, you may have, uh, you may be familiar with Augustine's famous four states of the right. redeemed person. Yeah. So, for instance, Adam was um, passe peccare, able to sin. However, he didn't have to sin. He was created good, but mutable so that he could actually fall away from the good. But after the fall, he is non passe, non peccare, not able not to sin. Right. Now, the redeemed believer is passe, non peccare, able not to sin. And those in heaven, the, the saints in heaven, who are confirmed, they're all confirmed in righteousness so that they cannot fall away from that righteousness. They are not able to sin. So they are non posse peccare. Just uh, uh, as God himself uh, cannot lie, cannot deny himself, and so forth. So God cannot sin. And of course, God. Of any being, if we want to refer to God as a being, of any being, God is the freest. Mm. And so freedom does not entail an ability to sin. Yeah, I like that. And so Augustine, you know, hammered out all these uh, details in his uh, uh, polemics with uh, Pelagius and and others uh, during this particular point in time. Okay, so uh, I'll stop there. I mean, we could go on, talk about, uh, well, let's talk about one more if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. Augustine really felt it necessary uh, to, before he became a Catholic Christian, he had gotten involved in a heresy called the Manichaean heresy. 
the Manichaeans promised their their young followers, their hearers, their auditors, that they would uh, give reasons for uh, their religious convictions. And unlike the Catholics of that time, they did not require someone just to have faith, just believe. And so um, Augustine could not come into the Catholic Christian fold until he could finally get some idea or understanding of how evil can exist in a world that's created by an all-powerful and all-good God. And so he had to uh, struggle with that, and as soon as he saw how it could be, how that could be, he determined that evil is what he called malum est non natura. Evil is no nature. It's not a thing. God didn't create it. Mm. Evil didn't come from the hand of God. Evil is simply a lack of something. In other words, it is a falling away. It's a lack of an element of goodness that should be there. In, in the individual, it's actually like disorder. The individual person is disordered. Hmm. And so uh, this is also his understanding of sin, for instance. If you stop and think about the sin in the garden, the tree was created by God. The tree was good. It was beautiful, we're told. You know, the, few, the fruit was beautiful, delicious. And so if Adam chose a good, wherein is the sin? Because the tree is not evil. Well, the sin is in the fact that he set aside a higher good, which was the command of God, to partake of a lower good. And that is a good example of disorder in the person. And so that's what makes it sinful. Hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. And you talked about the Manichaeans, and was a lot of that 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 battle and that discussion recorded in in Augustine's confessions? Yes. Now, Augustine does. Uh, Augustine deals with Manichaeans quite often. It's something I guess it stayed with him for the rest of his life. So you can read in his confessions about Manichaeanism. He also is going to address it from time to time in the City of God. He also did a small work. Uh, called uh, De Utilitate Credendi, on the usefulness of believing. Hmm. Um, And so Augustine, uh, as he was on his journey toward the Catholic faith and away from the Manichaean heresy, he started realizing the role and value of faith, Uh, not just in the religious sphere, definitely in the religious sphere, but in other spheres as well. And so you may have heard the uh, the famous statements that's often attributed to Augustine, credo ut intelligum, I believe in order that I might understand. And he, he realized that faith, in a sense, was the beginning point um, of understanding this world and the perennial questions that we all have by virtue of being human. Uh, you know, where do we came? Where do we come from? Where do we go? What is ultimate reality? Those issues that we call today, for instance, worldview questions. You know, Mrs. Ballard, as I as I think about you and you studied at at Moody and uh, on your undergrad at your master's, and I'd love to hear how you first were introduced to Augustine and and the City of God. Sure. So I um, was first kind of introduced to Augustine through some of the Reformation era theologians and a lot of 
um, I guess a lot of what we think of when we think of really influential early theologians um, typically are Reformation era people like Luther and Calvin. Um, but the more that you study them, the more that you realize their ideas really come from Augustine and Calvin in particular quotes him all the time, all over the place. Um, and there's a really interesting um, story about Calvin that um, happened during the Reformation. And some of the Roman Catholics were accusing him and other Reformation theologians of not being within orthodoxy or within um, the tradition of the church. And Calvin retorts and says, listen, I and we know more of the church fathers and what they wrote than you do, and goes on to quote Augustine um, over and over and over till they kind of get the point that he knows him by memory. They refer to him all the time. Um, so when I think of Augustine, I really think of um, kind of the first um, greatest theologian, because after him, everyone kind of refers back to him the most. Um, and I think of him, I, I like to picture him as kind of a tree. Um, and Mr. Hendricks mentioned the time in which he lived, it was really kind of tumultuous and pivoting and changing. Uh, so Augustine, I like to think of him as this tree because the winds are changing around him and they're kind of going crazy and all these heresies are starting to pop up. Um, people have kind of gone to extremes with their theology. And so Augustine's kind of in the middle and he's standing for orthodoxy and he's hammering out all these different things. Um, and a lot of people will know Augustine through his controversies with other people and other heresies. Um, and so he's kind of this person that just stands within scripture, stands within orthodoxy, furthers it, and um, kind of um, paves the way for how to stay orthodox, orthodoxical, I guess, um, in within controversy. Um, so I was first introduced him to him through Reformation era authors, and then went on to study him a little bit more in depth on his own, but. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I, I thought that that analogy of a tree is is excellent. And, you know, the cliche of, you know, we stand on the soldiers or the shoulders of, of great men and women, I would say that that could definitely apply to to Augustine. And you look around at the different Christian, I wouldn't say denominations, but I would say the different traditions, the Orthodox and the Catholic and the Protestant tradition, they all seem to look back to Augustine. And the it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that the the Roman Catholic Church today, as we know it, points back to certain doctrines that makes them unique from Augustine. The Protestant Church looks back to him as certain, um, as as formulating certain doctrines that they find mm -hmm. uh, formational. And so really you can't escape Augustine when you're thinking through the Christian worldview as a, a modern day, modern day Christian. Absolutely. I think that's definitely fair to say. Well, let me clarify something, Dane, with, uh, with the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church in Augustine. Yes. Now, Augustine in a council in 553, which is uh, of course an Orthodox council, it's an Eastern council, and he is listed as one of the fathers. However, Augustine was not widely read in the East. And in fact, he wasn't even translated in Greek until I think the 13th century. 
And uh, he's very problematic for many of the modern Orthodox scholars. Um, so, uh, but that doesn't mean Augustine is not important because whether he's right or wrong in any aspect of his thinking, just the fact that he's been so influential makes him important to know. Um, hmm. I heard uh, John Gerson when you asked that question, and I was—I wanted to—I didn't want to interrupt. But I wanted to jump in and say, uh, I remember uh, the Reformed uh, historian and theologian John Gerson. I once heard him say, and and this wasn't hyperbole. He was trying to be accurate, so I, I'm thinking it. I mean, it may be. He he said more people have learned Christianity from Augustine than from the Apostle Paul. Oh, and wow. so that's why Augustine is so important, because if he's made an error, if he sent us off on the wrong path, <laughs> you know, we, we kind of need to know that. So he doesn't say Augustine is more important than Paul, but notice it's Paul as mediated through Augustine who, yes. uh, you know, became so influential, especially throughout the, you know, the Middle Ages. Um, but if you want to just see one example of Augustine's influence in the Western church, it's immense, as you say, in both Protestant and Catholic churches. Uh, for instance, if you look at Peter Lombard's uh, four book of the of the sentences, mm -hmm. which was the basic uh, main theological text other than scripture uh, for the universe, uh, the universities in the Middle Ages. Um, I can't remember the exact number of quotes in the book from the church fathers. It's like fourteen hundred or something like that. And about eleven hundred and seventy or eleven hundred seventy-six is the number that stands out in my mind, are from Augustine. So it's like eighty percent of his quotations are from Augustine. So that shows you Augustine's impact uh, on the the uh, theological concepts and uh, and approach to theology of the uh, medieval scholastics as well. So he's ju he's just been a I mean we said this many times a, a pivotal figure in the history of. Um, of uh, Christian theology. So let's go ahead and, and transition to what many have considered is his greatest work and go ahead and contradict me on that. But why did Augustine write The City of God? Well, Augustine did believe that was his, uh, he thought that was his magnum opus. He said, he said so. He worked on it off and on for about 13 years. I think he started it in approximately 412, 413. He finished it in about 426. The occasion for the work is um, a uh, a letter written by a uh, a Christian uh, Roman official who um, well let me go back and say that okay he's writing this in the latter part of four beginning it in the latter part of four twelve or the early part of four thirteen and Rome had been sacked in four ten by some barbarian invaders who also had been Christianized by the way. Hmm. Um, but um, many of the uh, pagan thinkers and uh, philosophers who were waning in their power, because remember, we've had a, the empire has been basically Christian uh, or had strong Christian influence and grown in its Christian and the Christian influence has grown ever since Constantine in right. the first quarter of the fourth century. So we've had a hundred years now of Christian emperors mainly and Christian influence inside the empire. And yet the empire seems to be coming apart. Things mm. are falling apart. And, uh, they've, you know, the glory days, as we might say, seem to have passed. Right. And people realize <laughs> this. And so they're saying, some of the pagan thinkers are saying, it's because we have given up on the ancient gods. Mm. You know, we've forsaken the ancient gods who protected us and who promised us this glory and who gave us this glory. And now the Christian religion has, 
you know, spread in fame and reputation and, uh, and uh, practice and so forth, this is the consequence. And so Mar- uh, Marcellinus asked Augustine, please respond <laughs> to this, yeah. you know, this difficult. It is an honest. Uh, if you want to be honest, that's a difficult question. Yeah. And so that was the original impetus behind what became this massive work of, you know, ultimately of 22 books. Right. And, and, you know, I can I can see how that question is so important because we think about the line of thinking where, all right, now here's the, the greatest empire on on Earth that many of them were thinking. And now we have turned from our from our godless ways and now we are worshiping the true God. Wouldn't that wouldn't that bring about great blessings? And, and why would we be falling apart? And. So I could see that um, how how enemies and uh, and and even honest Christians would be thinking, what is what is happening? And Mrs. Ballard, would you like to to add on to to that in any way? Yeah, I think um, yeah, the sack of Rome was kind of a watershed moment for a lot of people in the empire because it had never happened before. <laughs> and um, so you have people like Jerome who. Um, is also a theologian who said, um, if Rome is gone, where is salvation? <laughs> um, so mm. people had started to equate um, the greatness of Rome with um, kind of, a kind of salvation. And um, so Augustine's reply to that is the city of God. And he had been developing themes of the city of God for a while. Um, a lot of the ideas he has in it are, um, there's echoes of them in his previous works, but, um, so he had been developing the idea of kind of this two city situation for a while. And then the sack of Rome kind of, um, gave him an impetus to actually start writing about it. Um, and so he's trying to defend the church from these pagans who want to argue that, Christianity and the empire's embrace of it is the reason for their downfall. Um, And he um, is also combating kind of two schools of thought about Rome kind of uh, within the church. And so one of those is that the empire is basically demonic um, and irredeemable um, that Rome is, is just too far gone. And then the other side of that is people who would say that, um, Rome and their embrace of Christianity is, is God's salvation that Rome is now Christianity's ally and vindicator. Um, And so this kind of imperial theology had begun. And so Augustine before the city of God was written had started off on kind of the train of the imperial theology. He was really optimistic about the empire. And then as the writing of the city of God drew closer, he began to kind of tone that down. (laughs) Um, And so in the city of God, you see kind of this medium ground, I think from Augustine, he um, doesn't want to throw away all the value from Rome. He sees um, lots of value there. And the fact that Christianity has been embraced by the empire has given it peace and the ability for Christianity to spread more easily. So he sees all of that value and um, brings it up in the city of God, but then also is going to say that um, Rome is, is just another empire in a long line that it doesn't necessarily have a sacred 
um, significance to it. And so he's going to develop these themes of the city of God. And he, um, yeah, I think he's trying to kind of bring these two schools together almost in kind of a middle ground. Yeah, that's helpful, Mrs. Ballard. And if I if I may read from Book 1, Chapter 36 of The City of God, for those who haven't read it and are looking for a, a simple place to jump in and kind of find out more of his purpose, Augustine says this, My task, as far as I shall receive divine assistance, will be to say what I think necessary in explanation of the origin, development, and appointed end of those two cities. Mm-hmm. And this I shall do to enhance the glory of the city of God, which shall shine the more brightly when set in contrast with cities of other allegiance. And so, like you were saying, Mrs. Ballard, he's he's trying to say that beyond Rome, which had become Christianized, there is another city, which is the city of God. And that's where our true alliance is to and where we should be pursuing and as Christians were part of. And then there's also the other dominant city, uh, the city of man. Yeah, he's going to say that the two cities represent um, almost a two two different kinds of love. Um, mm-hmm. The earthly city is going to be um, represented in kind of a love of power and domination and um, bringing glory to man. And then the other is the city of God, which um, is represented by a love of God. And he... Um, brings an interesting phrase into play when he's talking about the city of God. He says um, in book 14, um, which is where he really kind of starts getting into the city of God. um, He says, earthly society has flowered from a selfish love, which dared to despise even God. Whereas the heavenly is rooted in a love of God that is ready to trample on self. In a word, this latter relies on the Lord, whereas the other boasts that it can get along by itself. Um, So I think that's a really good summary of what he thinks about these two cities, the earthly one and the city of God. Um, It's really about what you love. It's about, do you love yourself and want to glorify yourself or do you love God and are you relying upon him? So, um, and that kind of depends on that, that tells you where your allegiance is, whether it's to the earthly city or the city of God. Yeah, that's a helpful distinction between that reliance on the Lord city of God versus dependence and boasting in oneself. Mm-hmm. Well, let me go back and um, and expand on what you guys were, were saying about the two cities. Yes. It, it's important yes. to understand, of course, that these cities are not places per se. Okay, um, good. Thank you. However, um, for Augustine, a society, for instance, our own society here, is not just people living in um, uh, proximity to each other. Uh, it wouldn't even be sharing a common language. But uh, it would require something more. And so the city of God refers to not just people, but to the unfallen angels. So all rational creatures, people and angel, the unfallen angels and people who who see their highest good, what's what we call the summum bonum, the highest good is in God. And therefore, God is to be loved, to be uh, enjoyed and not to be used. Everything other than what you love, this is the way Augustine uses the word love, not the way we normally do it in colloquial language, such as I love a steak. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, he, when he uses love in reference to God, he means that that is the person's summum bonum. 
there is nothing beyond that. So God is not to be used to get to something beyond God. If God were to be used to get to something better beyond God, more money, uh, better health or whatever, I'm not saying God can't deliver those things to the believer. But if a person if a person worships and serves God for those reasons, then that's the definition of idolatry. You've put something above God because the summum bonum, going all the way back to Aristotle, is that for which uh, all other things are done. And so the city of God is composed of all rational beings whose summum bonum is in God. Um, so they love God. And uh, the earthly city is actually composed of fallen angels, so it's not a place necessarily, right. and, uh, and uh, unredeemed people uh, whose love, whose highest good is sought in anything else other mm-hmm. than God. And so that's a, a, a simple bifurcation. And so Augustine talks about uh, there are basically two races of people, you might say. It has nothing to do with skin color or, uh, or anything of that or language or, you know, where a person lives on the map. But it's what the person loves in the, in the understanding of love, the technical understanding, the philosophical uh, understanding of love that Augustine uh, is using there. Well, let me just let me do this. Uh, and you asked a question about things. Let me do it this way. And I think it will help us organize our thinking about the book because it is a massive work. Yes. Augustine himself tells us um, in his uh, work called Retractiones, Augustine wrote an additional book called The Retractions. And this is a book about his books. And so he goes back and treats again uh, issues and describes his works uh, near the end of his life, uh, this is the way we know which works are genuinely Augustinian and which works are claimed to be by Augustine but are not his. And so he describes why he wrote The City of God, and he says that the book is divided into two parts composed of five sections total. And so I'll give it to you very uh, succinctly here. He says that part one consists of two sections. Books one through five is section number one. And in books one through five, he's going to argue apologetically. This is the apologetic section, one of them, against those who claim or who believe that man's welfare, mankind's welfare in this world is found in the worship of the many gods, the polytheistic gods. And then in books six through ten, He argues against those who believe that, well, we don't worship these polytheistic gods necessarily for the benefits that we get in this life, but for the benefits that we get in the next life. So those first 10 books compose part one. Part one is an apologetic, uh, as you can see by its very nature. However, remember, we, we, we talked just briefly about the originality and genius of Augustine. And so Augustine was asked to write an apologetic work, but he can't stop there. And so now, beginning in books 11 through 22, he begins to construct this whole philosophy of history. Some people say it's the first. Right, uh, right. Augustine is just, he's original. Everything he touches is, you know, he brings his genius to it. And so he divides the second part, books 11 through 22, into three sections. Books 11 through 14 deal with the origin of the two cities. How is it that we get two cities? So he begins by addressing the what is evil, what is uh, uh, 
he talks about creation. He talks about fall uh, of the angels. Um, he talks about, therefore, the introduction of sin, you know, what is evil and so forth. So in books 11 through 14, he begins to talk about the origin of the two cities. How, the, how do the two cities originate? Then in books 15 through 18, he talks about the progress of the two cities. And so here in these books, he begins to discuss what we might call redemptive history. He looks at scripture and he sees this, this uh, uh, narrative that frames and gives meaning to all of human history. Uh, this is God's interpretation of what God is doing, basically. And then he uses Varro and Virgil and Livy and others and talks about uh, history of uh, the world, you might say. You know, the major empires and this type of thing. Running alongside of uh, a timeline of all these biblical events. That's then, really – oh, go ahead. Keep go going. Ahead. Okay, the last uh, well, one, we'll get yeah. to your question. I got one more day. The final, the final books, 19 through 22, he deals with the ends of the two cities. What will be the goals? What are the ends? How will they end up? And so one will end up in judgment, so to speak, uh, 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 receiving God's judge, uh, justice, and the other city will end up um, you know, in eternal blessedness, receiving God's uh, gracious blessing. Uh, you had a question? Yeah, well, that you know, you you mentioned the term philosophy of history, and as you explained, what he does in the latter part of the book of of tracing the two cities from creation to judgment and eternal life, and for many modern day Christians, that's not that big of a deal. But help me understand just a little bit why this has been so impactful of him giving a being the first one to give a philosophy of of history a unified narrative? You know, that's, a, that's a, an important question. It's a, it's a question that's probably beyond me to answer. However, I will say this. Augustine, in my mind, and I, you know, I've read a, a lot in the Fathers. I haven't read everything, East and West. I've read a lot. But uh, in my mind, Augustine seems to be the one who most captures, um, or who best captures, and most perfectly captures the whole idea of the continuing threads and themes throughout the entire scripture. So he begins to see the the thing is almost like a seamless garment. Hmm. Um, and um, that's why I refer to it as redemptive history. Right. Um, you know, it's interesting. If you ask a student, uh, I've done this in 11th and 12th grade classes and so forth. Ask a student, what is the Bible? And that catches mm -hmm. people by surprise because they're like, well, I mean, it's a book made up of other books and so forth. And then, you know, I, I've even heard pastors say, it's a love letter from God. And so I began to discuss with them uh, basically what I've gotten from Augustine and, of course, others uh, since Augustine's time. But I say, isn't it history? Doesn't it tell us things that happen? But it's not just a world history. It's redemptive mm -hmm. history. And so it's God acting in history and then through his prophets and apostles and so forth. He gives us the interpretation of the events. He tells us what he's doing. And so the Bible is, in a sense, one long story, uh, even though you have the various individual authors and so forth. It is one long story because, as we say, the Holy Spirit is its primary author. God is its primary author, and he's explained to us what he's doing. So Augustine saw this, I think, clearly, and um, I, I think maybe he's the first person to do that. So 
once again, just as though we said that our understanding of original sin is primarily Augustinian, uh, our understanding, I think, of Scripture as redemptive history probably, I can't be dogmatic about this, but probably could be traced back to Augustine. Uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't necessarily uh, put every one of these uh, planks in place, but uh, he certainly uh, is primarily responsible for it the way I see it. That is a very important insight that we have a unified philosophy of redemptive history, because not all worldviews have that. And I think especially in a time of uncertainty, that can be a great source of comfort. At least I know that is for me. Well, not only not only is um, is the history uh, Im- important for the reasons that we just described for Augustine, we can tie it back into what we call theodicy. In other mm-hmm. words, uh, how is it that God, who's providentially in control of this universe and can do what he will, allows so much evil, so many bad events and so forth, everything from natural disasters to, uh, uh, you know, uh, righteous people suffering, <clears throat> innocent, you know, children suffering and all this type of thing. And so for Augustine, as you say, he doesn't give up on the providence of God and say, well, that's outside of God's control. But Augustine sees this history, this story, as an artistic work, Hmm. believe it or not. Um, In other words, God is not just a creator. He's an artist, so to speak. And um, he's also an author. You get it? Because that's what an author does. You know, he creates. And um, so Augustine says that we have to—the only answer of faith— the only answer that we have in theodicy, we can't understand. We just have an answer that relies on faith. And that is that God is going to bring a greater good out of a, a universe in which evil exists than he would have brought out of a universe in which no evil ever existed. And mm. that he's capable of doing that. You know, I once heard J.I. Packer. I, I love that. I uh, can't remember where he said that. I don't remember if he said it. Uh, I've listened to him lecture and, and talk with him and so forth before and then uh i've listened to his tapes and i've read his books and but i can't remember where he said it but he wasn't referring to augustine but he said uh he used the example of a hooked rug most people probably know uh you know factory rug uh, on top has a design and a factory rug if you turn it over you can sort of see the design on bottom but the old-fashioned hooked rugs um you you look at the top of the of the uh of the rug and you see the mosaic, you see the beautiful design and the story maybe behind it even could be a mythological scene or something. If you turn it over, all you see is a bunch of knots and cut off strings. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and Packer says, that's sort of the way it is, uh, with us here. We're looking at the knots and the strings. We don't see the beautiful pictures on the other side. And I think that's a perfect illustration of what Augustine was trying to say, even though I don't think he was trying to explain Augustine in that regard. Uh, I think that's a perfect way of of looking at it. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really helpful, Mrs. Ballard. As you've been thinking through the the themes that stand out to you in the City of God, which ones come to mind? Yeah, I think um, really the the way that he talks about the two cities being currently mixed. <laughs> um, yes, like Mr. Yes. Hendricks was saying, this isn't a specific place if this is um, types of people really. And um, so the fact that um, the two cities are, are mixed here on earth right now, and then eventually will be separated out. 
um, I think is interesting to think about as we think about the church today, even, and um, what kind of separates us and separates us from the world, as we might say. And um, I think um, that that theme of the two loves is is really important to think through and um, think about um, how we view um, people around us and people in the church, even and out of the church and, um, kind of get to the bottom of what, what is, what is it that you most love and what is it that you most seek? Um, I think those are two really important questions to ask. Um, and I think that, um, just the fact that these two cities, um, have to be mixed right now. There's the, we, we don't have, um, the city of God in one place where we can go and um, sit within its walls. And that's not really how we're, we're designed. We're designed to be mixed. We're designed to be in the world. um, I guess we would say in the world, not of it. And so um, Augustine's idea that Rome is not necessarily all bad and that there's um, peace in Rome at the time. And that has allowed Christianity to spread and all of that. I think it helps us to see that we do also need to promote peace, but that we don't need to find our um, ultimate satisfaction in that because our citizenship is elsewhere. Um, And so I think it's a good lens to view um, the world around us when we think about the two cities for sure. Well, and that reminds me of Jesus's parable when he's talking about you know, the wheat and the tares, and I believe that's the parable. And it's not until judgment in which they will be fully separated. And that is an important reality as we are thinking about our calling to the city of God is that we will be uh, we'll be amid those who are dedicated to the city of man. Mm-hmm. And as we come to the close of this episode, this has flown by, and I, I think it's just been so rich and uh, very thought-provoking. Let me ask you guys this question. Do you see anything in the city of God in particular, or in Augustine in general, that speak to classical and Christian education that that we should consider? We Providence is a classical Christian school, and I think that uh, we would be amiss to not ask that question. Yeah, I think that um, there's a great deal that we could talk about there. But um, for me, I think of Augustine's unwillingness to put Rome into extremes. Um, In classical, especially classical Christian education, we want to um, take in things, um, writings, worldviews, others that that we um, learn about and talk about, but to not put them uh, to extremes, just to take the truth, beauty, and goodness out of what we can. And then um, remember that we are not necessarily part of the city of man, but that we are part of the city of God. And so I think that ties in really well to classical um, education because we, that's especially a classical Christian education, because that's what we're doing. We're looking for God's truth, God's beauty and God's goodness in this world that he's made. And that includes looking at things that are produced within and by the city of man. Um, and so not necessarily to say like some were saying that Rome was just irredeemable and there's nothing good in it. And we can't even be around it really. <laughs> um, and to say, no, there's things of value there and we can see God's hand in them 
um, and to learn more about him through those things. So, Mr. Hendricks, how would you answer that question? Well, I would answer it affirmatively. I can, without reservation, affirm that, you know, Augustine does speak to issues that are supremely relevant to uh, what we're actually doing today. Augustine not only embodied a certain approach to education, but he also became an important and determining determinative figure in gaining, in a sense, an enduring victory for his approach to education. Uh, as we might say today, his view sort of won the day. Now, to, to understand the way he viewed Christian education, we first need to look at a little bit broader issue, a broader topic, and look at this ancient discussion, mainly among Christian thinkers, as to what should be the relationship between the truths that we know from the Bible, mm-hmm. those called revelation, the truths of revelation, and the truths that can be known by the natural light of human reason without reference to revelation. So I don't think it's oversimplifying um, to the point of um, uh, being untrue, but I'll, I'll just divide these into two groups in the, among ancient Christians. Let's say group one believed in a strong opposition between faith and reason. That is, some Christians thought that human reason in its higher functioning, as used, for instance, in philosophical thinking and so forth, was useless, and its study and pursuit inevitably led to heresy in the church. So it was worse than, in a sense, useless. It was uh, hostile. Uh, it was uh, noxious. It was poisonous. All that we really needed, all the Christian really needs, is to know that uh, you know what is the supreme that what is of supreme importance can be found in Scripture. So that's mm-hmm. in a sense Group One, and there are representative, uh, 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 numerous representatives of that of that way of thinking. And if I were to mention some of the names, you'd probably recognize them in, in the ancient church. Then Group Two, Group Two um, saw basically, um, and Augustine is in this group, a potential harmony, and even better than harmony, a positive a possibility of developing both sets of truths. In other words, mutually assisting each other, the truths of revelation and the truths of reason. So there are many truths that can be known by the natural light of human reason. And the pagan philosophers had found some of these. Now, this is the way people in group two thought. It is through faith in the revelation of God that we can, in fact, now begin to use reason rightly. By ascertaining which teachings agree with and support, perhaps even explain the truths of Christian revelation. And so this is where Augustine is. So he basically fashions this. Once again, he takes the pieces or, or whatever, the planks, and hammers it together into a beautiful edifice and, in a sense, hands it to us. Um, in, his, um, uh, in his work, De Doctrina Christiana, on Christian uh, doctrine, um, Augustine says this about the biblical story. I've got a quote here. I'll find it about the biblical story where God orders the Israelites to take the gold and silver from the Egyptians. Yes. He says this. uh, Here it is. Quote, the gold and silver, which they did not create, but dug out of the mines of God's providence, which are everywhere scattered abroad and are perversely and unlawfully prostituted to the worship of devils. In other words, um, uh, Augustine didn't see these as human creations. He saw them as human discoveries. 
So it's something that God has left, so to speak, for us to discover, such as logic. It's not we make it. We we just recognize it. We find it. You know, mm-hmm. that's the beauty of Aristotle, uh, uh, you know, Aristotelian logic and so forth. So um, um, but it's, it even goes further than that, Dame, because it's very much related to issues that concern you. We see, for instance, this Augustinian attempt to lay hold of all the legitimate arts and sciences and cultivate them yes. in the context of Christian faith. It's carried out in the Middle Ages. Stop and think about it. The best art, the best music, the best architecture, the best philosophy, the best education was all where? Was all being done in and by the church. Okay. And, um, but there are problems with that, of course. When this happens, the church maybe becomes, uh, it, it, it becomes a patron and a promoter of a culture. Maybe this is open to legitimate criticism. I think it probably is. However, the answer is not so simple because look at what happens when the church withdraws to some exclusively religious sphere. Other forces come in and develop culture in line with their own notions and values, which you know may run counter to Christian ideas and values. So that's the problem. There's going to be a vacuum and somebody's going to fill it. Well, that's – man, that's the heart of classical Christian education. And exactly. Mrs. Ballard – and Mr. Hendricks, both of you just captured that. I mean, you know, at this at, at Providence Academy, we read not just scripture and not just books uh, and resources by Christians, but we spend a lot of time studying works by individuals who are not Christian. And I, and I think that was really helpful as you distinguish those two parties, Mr. Hendricks. Well, as we as we do wrap up this episode. I'm thinking of those of us who have not read The City of God, and as I am holding the book right now in my hand, it is massive. My edition is over a thousand pages. And so my question for for you two as we close is, do you think that that the common Christian like me should read The City of God? And if so, we're probably going to be overwhelmed by it. But do you have any recommendations on where we can start and how we can go about that process? Yeah, I think um, City of God can definitely be overwhelming when you look at it. Um, And I think um, one of the best things to do is to sit down and look through, like Mr. Hendricks was saying about the, the structure of the book, basically, and saying, Um, Augustine definitely divides his work into pretty um, intense, distinctive um, parts, and he has different kind of topics throughout each of them. And so um, for me, if I was just starting out looking at the city of God, I think I would look through the structure there and just see, um, like, for example, he really gets into the city of God in book 14. And so I'm starting somewhere around there. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily something that you need to just sit down and start with page one and go because he does do such different themes um, throughout the book. And you can kind of um, jump around as, as needed as you want, because I think really um, whatever you glean from the city of God um, is going to be helpful in shaping theology and things like that. Great. Thank you, Mrs. Ballard. What would you say, Mr. Hendricks? One reason I did mention the structure of the book was to shed some light on this particular question, to let people know, you know, which sections are dealing with with which issues and so forth. 
you know, someone therefore could just read in the particular section where he or she has the most interest. Uh, for instance, uh, we just said books one through 10 are mainly apologetic. Uh, they're dealing um, with uh, issues that arose in the history of Rome. If someone were just interested in history and what Augustine has to say about what occurred in Rome, uh, various uh, catastrophes, uh, good things, bad things, whatever, um, historical events and, and personages, then, uh, you know, books one through 10. If you're interested in um, maybe uh, the, uh, Augustine's deeper thinking on some of the difficult uh, theological issues, such as uh, creation uh, ex nihilo, um, you know, the uh, how is it that the angels who were, you know, blessed were able to fall? How can that be? Um, Things of that nature, um, you know, you would look uh, along about, you know, books 10 and 11 and that type of thing. If you're interested in that, looking at Augustine's understanding of that biblical uh, story as a redemptive history, then you would go to where he talks about the uh, origins uh, or the progress of the city of God. And so um, just, you know, just by nature, the fact that he has he has given this structure, uh, it allows you to go and get a great deal of uh, edifying and informative uh, material for yourself and, and challenging as well. It's going to be difficult to read in, in, even in an English translation because of the categories of thought and so forth. We're just not familiar with most people who don't work in this material all the time. Uh, but you still, you don't have to read the entire work. I mean, you could easily say, you know what, this, um, uh, you know, I'm going to spend, uh, you know, an afternoon uh, every day this week. Uh, looking through a certain section, and it would be well worth your time to uh, to do that. Well, that's very helpful, both of you. And I hope that this is encouragement for you to at least, if you haven't yet, dip your toe into this this great theological work. Well, Mrs. Ballard and Mr. Hendricks, thank you so much for your time. I know that this has been very enriching for me, and I hope that it was for you as well. Thank yeah. you, Dane. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Well, that wraps up our time for the Learning in Wartime podcast. I'm Dane Bundy, your host. Thank you so much for listening. My prayer is that this podcast would be a great encouragement to you in this time of war. And remember, today's going to be a great day, for our Lord reigns. Rest in Him. See you next week.